Welcome to the Kingdom Roots Podcast with Scott McKnight, the conversation designed to look at how the kingdom took root then and how it's taking root now. Today on the podcast, we have a sermon from Scott on Epiphras, the behind-the-scenes kingdom worker. Morning. Good morning. I think Jay has a sense of comic timing. First time I was asked to speak here was three years ago on this Sunday. Of course, we don't pay attention to calendars, pay attention to the lectionary because of this text, but I'm going to fool him today and not talk about the Jesus Creed. (laughs) Because each lectionary reading gives us options, so I'm going to take uh, what uh, Robert Frost called the road less traveled, We're going to look at one word, a name, but first an image. Some of you will know that uh, the uh, last couple weeks, Chris and I and a few others, Bob and Joanne and my daughter, Laura, took a trip to Turkey, some islands in the Mediterranean, tough, tough gig, (laughs) Santorini, okay, you know, the one with the blue roofs. And then we went to Greece. And when we were on the island of Crete, I had two thoughts. One thought is, if you're going to suffer for the gospel, this is a good place to do it. It was pretty nice. The other is that we were taken to an olive farm. And on this olive farm, we got a passionate description, some of which we understood about how oil is made on this countryside farm. And I don't remember the man's name, so I'll just call him Stephanos, which is a very safe name in Crete. And he described how when he was a young man, he didn't pay attention to his master father farmer, who was brilliant with oil. And so then he said, and he kept pointing to heaven, the father, the Lord had taken his father, And then he was left with this olive farm and didn't know what he was doing. And um, when he went to the university professors, they wouldn't help him. I think that's what he told us. Is that right? Something like that. Uh, Because they were in it for the business, and and he was in it for the business. And eventually some people helped him out, and now he's a master farmer of olive oil. And when you go to the grocery store and buy olive oil... Italian, Greek, or Cretan, the farmer's name is not on the oil. It'll just say some kind of olive oil. But behind every bottle of olive oil is a master olive farmer. And we want to look at one of these behind-the-scenes characters in the letters of Paul today who gets no attention, but he was doing all the work. Behind-the-scenes characters in the history of the church are often silenced. Sometimes they're abused, they're frequently ignored, and their names are unknown. Because of the silencing of voices we saw this week with Alton Sterling and Philando Castile, What appears to most of us to be 
gross injustice. Easier to perpetrate in the case of someone whose voice has been silenced and who has become largely ignored in our culture. It is easier to perpetrate crimes against the silenced because they have no voice, they have no power, they can say nothing. We watched as Philando Castile's girlfriend in stunning poise with her iPhone videoed what was going on. Amazing. I thought, she's just talking about what's happening, like an independent, disinterested reporter. And we can be thankful for that kind of reporting because we saw what happened. We also saw reverse injustices occur in Dallas against policemen who were doing their duty and trying to keep protesters for justice in line and providing a safe environment for them to protest against injustice in our world. Silenced voices lead to actions at times that are impossible to understand. Ralph Ellison wrote a brilliant novel about black men in America called The Invisible Man. And if you've read the book, which you should read at some point in your life, you will probably get frustrated on about page three because the man has no name. And the novel goes all the way through with no name. And you're just wanting for him to give him a name. I gave the guy a name because it was too frustrating not to have a name. I called him Stephanos. It's a good Greek name. But that's the whole plot of the book, is to see that some people have been silenced so much in our cultures that they have become invisible. And I believe that the church's mission is to make invisible people visible, so that all people become known as children of God. That's our mission. And we want to look at one of these invisible people. You read about him, and you ignored him, and didn't even notice he was being mentioned today. It is not the sort of invisibility that the African-American male has experienced in the United States at levels of systemic injustice, but it is still a silenced voice. And we can learn from this person's voice maybe how to raise the invisible person to visibility and to give the silenced voice a platform for speaking. This man's name is Epaphras. And some of my students call him Epiphras because <laughs> they don't even know how to pronounce his name. And yet, he was quite an accomplished minister in the first century. And I would be willing to say that apart from Joanne and Bob and Chris and Laura, no one in this room knows anything. They don't know deadly squat about Epaphras. And that's fair to say. Because we talk about Paul. Behind the oil in a can is a farmer. Behind Paul is a pastor. 
In Colossians 1.7, it says this, you learned the gospel of God's grace from Epaphras, our dear fellow servant, who is a faithful minister of Christ on our behalf, who also told us of your love in the spirit. Epaphras was a good gossip. He went to Paul and told him all about the Colossians. So I want to talk today about behind-the-scenes ministry and use this as an opportunity at times to launch into bringing people who are behind the scenes onto the stage of life. Now, Epaphras was known in Colossae, which today is nothing other than a mound of brown grass. Last week it was, anyway. And it was 104 degrees. And it's not a nice place to be at 104 degrees. And the little Meander, Meander River is right next to it. And it, has never been, it hasn't been archaeologically uncovered, but it will be. Uh, two Australians uh, have the responsibility. And when, when the uh, professor at Pamukkale University says it's time to do it, then they're ready to go. And then, uh, then up, up the hill, uh, up the streets, or up the road, is Laodicea. And it was 106 when we were at Laodicea. In the Bible it says it's a lukewarm city. It wasn't lukewarm that day. <laughs> and then there's Hierapolis, which is just a graveyard of archaeological rubble. A little bit there, but not much. Colossae, Laodicea, and Hierapolis had churches founded by Epaphras. Three churches. How many churches have you planted? Three. At least three by Epaphras. Okay? So first, a little bit of the life of Epaphras. I don't want to start mispronouncing his name. A little bit about his life so far as we know. In Colossians chapter 4, verse 12, we learn this. Epaphras, who is one of you, which means he's from Colossae. All right, that's something we know about him. He was most likely converted during Paul's second missionary journey, sometime when Paul was in Ephesus. Somewhere between 40 and 52, he was converted. We know that Paul never visited Colossae because it says in Colossians 2.1, I want you to know how hard I am contending for you and for those at Laodicea and for all who have not met me personally. So Paul had never been to Colossae. Epaphras had. Epaphras was ministering the gospel for Paul. He was sent on a mission trip, what's called the Lycus Valley. So it says in Colossians 1.7, the text that we looked at today, that they had learned the gospel and so Epaphras had founded the church at Colossae. He successfully formed three churches. This is an odd thing if you're a first century Jewish apostle in Ephesus sending out strangers or locals into a valley and say, start some churches. Willa Cather said this right when she said they believed they were on the right trail for they had seen no other. That's Paul. He only knew that the job was to spread the gospel about Jesus no matter where, what trail you follow. So Epaphras was following the gospel 
mission that Paul had started. And in Philippian, Philemon, verse 23, we also learn that Epaphras was imprisoned because of his ministry with Paul. It says, Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus, sends you greetings. Now, this is probably, I think, certainly, a letter sent to the same church at Colossae, only it's sent to Philemon, who is a slave owner, about his slave Onesimus. So by this time, Epaphras is in prison when Paul sends this letter. So this is what we know about Epaphras. Converted under Paul's ministry, sent on a mission, he founds three churches, he struggles with some things, he ends up in prison. Not a bad story. I'd like to know more, more about what happened before, what happened afterwards. But we know these things, and he's a silenced voice, but we can learn plenty about ministry and about raising silenced voices to a vocal platform by watching Epaphras. So if we've looked at his life now, I'd like to dwell on some points. The first is this, behind the scenes, servants are often engaged in ministry and sometimes, like Epaphras, their ministry begins very quickly. Paul did not send Epaphras to seminary. Had he done so, it would have been to Northern. <laughs> Paul was our kind of guy. That's what I like to say. I tried to talk Alex into that, but I've not done well. I say, I say quickly because I have a little bit of a theory of the chronology of Paul's life at work here. You can disagree with me, but please, for the moment, give me my point, because it'll ruin it otherwise. <laughs> I think Paul was imprisoned in Ephesus, that he wrote this letter from Ephesus, not Rome. So it was written somewhere around 53 to 55. Epaphras was probably converted in the early 50s. Give him a couple years around Paul, and he's ready to plant three churches. So he's immediately sent into ministry. Paul was a man of high expectations. He was a mentor, a discipler. He was disciplined. He expected people to go along with him. He learned to die to self, and he taught Epaphras the same thing. What's it like to go back to your hometown and plant churches? It's not easy. It's easy to go somewhere where no one knows you, so you can establish your reputation as you do on Facebook and Twitter. But Paul and Epaphras learned to die to self. As Bonhoeffer once said famously, those who enter into discipleship enter into Jesus' death. They turn their living into dying. Such has been the case from the very beginning, Bonhoeffer said. The cross is not the terrible end of a pious, happy life. Instead, it stands at the beginning of community with Jesus Christ. Whenever Christ calls us, Bonhoeffer said, he called, his call leads to death. Now, you may know the English translation that is famous. It's not accurate, but it's better English. When Christ bids a man come, he bids him come and die. It's not what Bonhoeffer said. It's his translator, R.H. Fuller. It's better than what Bonhoeffer said. But Bonhoeffer said, the call leads to death. Epaphras learned that. He learned that his life had died, and he was now living a life of mission. As Plutarch, 
the great Greek writer once said, when people see a friend's house aflame, they extinguish it with all possible speed and strength. But when souls are ablaze, they add kindling. That's what Paul did to Epaphras. He saw this young man had a capacity to die to self and minister the gospel, and he threw cross all over the guy. And he took off for the Lycus Valley and planted three churches. Epaphras succeeded. He succeeded in building these churches, and these churches are known for their love and for their faith. And they struggled, but they succeeded. And he got the job done. I, had a, I, have a, I had a black student at Northern Seminary who had a habit of calling me when, I was, when he was my student about once a month to have lunch at my expense. <laughs> at a restaurant, not in my office. You know, not with, not with sandwiches or anything like that. And we'd sit and talk about ministry. He's ministering in the city of Chicago, and he ministers in situations that I've never seen in my life. Very difficult. Food deserts and all. His name is Phil. And one day Phil said to me, have you ever spoken at the Hampton Conference? I said, what's the Hampton Conference? And he said these three things. 10,000 pastors every summer in Hampton, Virginia, Oldest pastor's conference in American history. Third, no white people ever come. I said, Phil, not only do they not come, I've never heard of it. So I called my publisher, whose initials are Zondervan. <laughs> and I said, do you ever have a booth at the Hampton Conference? You know what they said? What's the Hampton Conference? Epaphras all over, Phil. Epaphras all over the Hampton. Do we live in two worlds? Or the same world? So we learn from Epaphras that there are voices out there that we just don't know about. 10,000 pastors. The longest consecutive running pastors conference in American history. And I didn't know anybody who had ever heard about it unless they were black. What's happened here? Epaphras knows that there are things happening behind the scenes. You know, pastoring, Marilyn Robinson once said, is about being stewards of ultimate things. And that's what pastors do. They don't have to be known and famous to be stewards of ultimate things. They just have to be engaged with people behind the scenes in coffee shops, in hospitals, in other places, discussing what God is doing in this world. And that's what Epaphras was doing in Colossae, Hierapolis, and Laodicea. Pastoring is about learning to live the life of God that God has called us to do. As Brian Doyle once said, holiness wears different clothes every day. Because you never know what's going to happen. In Laodicea, it was different than Hierapolis and different than Colossae and Ephesus. Whoa, that was a big city, big event. But he was out in the Lycus Valley ministering the gospel behind the scenes. And nobody today knows about it.
Second observation, we have to move on. Behind the scenes, servants of God are willing to seek the, the wisdom and help of others. Okay, so Paul trained him. And so Epaphras goes to the Lycus Valley and he plants churches and he runs into some Jewish Christian types who are giving him more than a run for his money. Paul's in prison. He can't, uh, you know, get on, you know, uh, Twitter and say, well, you come speak in Colossae. We got some crazy people talking crazy things. He has to walk to Ephesus where Paul's in prison. That's five days, unless you're really after it. You make it three or four, but then you're probably not at 106. You're not going to be doing that. It's a nice valley. There's, it's, it's a pleasant place to walk. But he has to go down there, and he finds Paul, and he describes to Paul what's going on in the, in the church. And, and he doesn't know how to respond to the kinds of problems that he's facing. And so Paul writes this letter largely as a response to a behind-the-scenes servant who didn't know what to say to these people who had confronted him. And Paul says very interesting things. You know how Paul is. I call his opponents here halakhic mystics. I think that's pretty good, but I'm not sure anybody knows what it means. <laughs> okay, they follow the law, and they're getting special experiences with God because of their way of following the law. So they're Jewish, but they're also mystics. See to it, Paul says, that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy, which de Paul doesn't like the word philosophy, which depends on human tradition and the elemental spiritual forces of this world rather than on Christ. All right, we got a little bit more in verse 16. Do not let anyone judge you by what you eat or drink or with regard to a religious festival, or a new moon celebration, or a Sabbath day. So now it's very Jewish. These are a shadow of the things to come. Do not let anyone who delights in false humility and worship of angels. I can tell you that nobody knows what these mean, and that's why they are the result, and they generate hundreds of pages of scholarly articles where everybody knows what it means, and no one agrees. But evidently, they had, Paul calls it false humility. This is an interpretation of a Greek word that doesn't use the word false. It's, it is a, it is an, it's an imposed humility designed to get people mystical experiences with God, which was very common in the Lycus Valley and very common in, in Asia Minor. Such a person goes into great detail about what they have seen. They are puffed up with idle notions by their unspiritual mind, they have lost connection with the head. So Paul has to respond to this question that Epaphras has for him. John Ortberg once said, I heard him say this several times, the first thing a minister needs to do is to become a good friend with a seminary professor. Unfortunately, John told him my name. So they write me questions all the time because it is always the case that ministers have to general have to minister all across the spectrum. And they need somebody who knows the stuff well. Well, somebody at a seminary probably does. Make friends with them and write them letters. You know, seminary professors think it's cool to be asked for their expertise. 
Paul thought it was cool that Epaphras showed up. I don't know how to respond to this. And Paul thought it was cool to write those paragraphs. And he knew he was thumping them in the chest with powerful language that was critiquing them at the depth of their foundation. Every young pastor and every leader needs to have people that they can go to for wisdom. I have an African-American female student right now by the name of Jamila. And I was teaching a course last winter on women in ministry. I like this topic. Our seminary likes this topic. I'll stop right there. (laughs) All right? And we were reading a book by a woman named Cochran on evangelical feminism, a history. And I said in class... Have you noticed that this is an evangelical feminine history about white women in ministry and not African? And Jamila jumped off her chair. And I said, frankly, evangelicalism is for white people mostly. Just look around. Just look at all the evangelical institutions. Why is that the case? And she loved that. And so she comes to me and she said, do you have a book on black women in ministry in American history? And I said, Jamila, I don't know if that book's been written, but I'd like you to write it. But she said, I'm not gonna. She said, you gotta find one for me. So we dug and dug and we found a book by a woman named Mackenzie. And she wrote me a long letter of thankfulness that she got to read a book about women like her from North Chicago who went to Northern Illinois University and now she's at Northern Seminary preparing to pastor and to teach in the church. She needed someone who could help her with the next level. There are a lot of people doing this. They come to people and ask for help. Behind-the-scenes servants then seek for help. How long do I go? As long as I want. I grew up Baptist, brother. You don't want to say that. <laughs> 20 more minutes? I'll skip that point. Some people are called into their hometown to serve and to work from their own environment like Epaphras. In the first class I taught at Northern Seminary, I had a six foot four inch bald black man who was hilarious by the name of Stanley Ratliff. And he always had something to say and about a third of the time it was hilarious. And everybody in the class was waiting for Stanley to talk in class because Stanley had stories from his life of ministry in the city of Chicago. So one day, Phil, he's all, Phil was always putting Stanley up to telling stories. Phil says, you got to ask Stanley about his story. So I did. Stanley brought a book the next week that he had written about his story. And I'm going to try to summarize the story of a black man in the city of Chicago who was saved under the ministry of Wayne Gordon, a Wheaton grad who thought he should be a football coach at Farragut High School and make a difference in the city. So he started an FCA group, and one of his first Christians was a quarterback named Stanley Ratliff. 
Big guy. Cool. Stanley uh, joins the FCA group, and then Stanley uh, had talent in music, and if you, can, if you know who the Bee Gees are, they were formed on people who dressed like Stanley, you know, big afros, leisure suits, and they could dance. And Stanley still likes to dance, and he danced in class. And Stanley just kind of wandered through life after he became a Christian. He wasn't doing the best, and then uh, he got involved with some bad people, and he got framed. He had turned his life around mostly, but a guy that he started to hang out with said, give this bag to this lady, and then he got intercepted by a policeman, and there were drugs in the bag. And even though the man who framed him admitted that he was framing Stanley and Stanley had nothing to do with it, Stanley was a black man in front of the legal system in the United States, and that meant it was going to be tough. And though the lawyer knew that Stanley was innocent and was framed, Stanley went to prison. And every month, Wayne Gordon went to Peoria, Illinois to visit with Stanley in prison. And Stanley got educated in prison, and he read the Bible every month in prison. And Stanley came to seminary, and now Stanley's working at Wayne Gordon's church called Lawndale Community Church, a major church in the city of Chicago. And Stanley's ministry is what? With the formerly incarcerated, because there's plenty in Lawndale. Stanley was like Epaphras. You didn't know Stanley till I told you. But he's behind the scenes doing the work of God. Wayne gets the credit. He's the oil can. But Stanley's doing the work. Wayne's doing the work, too. I shouldn't say it that way. <laughs> the final point I want to make is this. Behind-the-scenes servants have the purest of labels. This is what Paul calls Epaphras. In Colossians 1, 7, he's a dear fellow servant. Agapeto. He loves this word love. Colossians 1, 7, he is a faithful minister. He likes the idea of faithfulness. Just keep at preaching the gospel. Keep at pastoring people toward Christ. And in Colossians 4, 12, he calls him a servant of Christ Jesus. These are Paul's highest labels. He's not an apostle. He's not a prophet. But the epitaphs for Epaphras had been written by Paul on the basis of what he had done. He didn't, we use the terms today, brilliant, gifted, successful, and famous. Paul used terms like servant and faithful and co-worker. A pastor friend of mine named Mike Glenn was in my house one day telling me about someone who had recently died in his church. He said he loved his wife, he loved his children, his children and his grandchildren loved him, his wife loved him, and everybody, this is Mike's final words, everybody at the church called him a servant of Christ. He had served in that church for years and years. I forgot his name. So we'll call him Epaphras. Here's another name that you probably don't know. Her name is Rebecca Proton, a slave on the island of St. Thomas in the 18th century. And her slave owner led her to Christ. 
And Rebecca Proton became a gifted and talented evangelist to slaves throughout St. Thomas, building churches and providing resources and materials to help the slaves learn about Jesus. And then the Moravians came in, and she became a Moravian from Europe. And she went back to Europe after six years of ministering the gospel on the island of St. Thomas, and she became involved in ministry in the Moravian area of Saxony and married a man named Christian, who was also mixed race like her. And for the rest of her life, decades, they taught African children in Europe the gospel. She's an Epaphras too. Jambil is an Epaphras. Stanley's an Epaphras. Phil is an Epaphras. They're not famous, but they're faithful ministers of the gospel. And throughout the United States, you and I have a responsibility to turn invisible people into visible because God is working in them to minister the gospel. Thanks for joining us today. Hope you enjoyed Scott's sermon on Epiphras and learned a little bit more about him, as well as how we can make those invisible kingdom workers more visible and, and identify them and their participation in the mission that Jesus gives us. So before I let you go, I wanted to remind you about the webinar that I mentioned last week. Scott is doing a webinar on how to teach your church to read the Bible. It's going to be October 26th uh, from 10 o'clock to 11 o'clock Central Standard Time, and we'd love to have you join us to learn about why there are really so many debates around how the Bible is to be read, be given a simple framework to approach and teach biblical interpretation, as well as walk away with a better and firmed up picture of what the major moves of the Bible story are, as well as one of the real cool opportunities in participating in a webinar is you get live interaction, and so you'll have the opportunity to come to Scott with some of your biggest questions about how to teach the church to read the Bible. So we'd love to have you join us on October 26th at 11, at 10 o'clock rather. And the way that you sign up for this and participate is come on to uh, Northern's website at seminary.edu and I'll include a link in the show notes. That would be the easiest way to jump in and be able to find how to sign up and join us. We'd love to have you for that webinar and I'm really just thankful again for you joining us today. So thanks again for being with us, and we'll talk to you next time as we continue our conversation on how the kingdom took root then and how it's taking root now.